Well, good morning. It's great to see all of you here today. Hey, before we go to the Word today, I just want to um, bring up a fact that most of you know. Some of you, it may catch you by surprise. Our kids are going back to school on Tuesday. And so, so no surprises in this room. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, the reason I bring that up is in our church family, we have a number of people who um, work um, as teachers, as school administrators, that serve in a number of different capacities um, in our church from, uh, from any kind of role at the church, driving a school bus to work in the playground, the cafeteria, um, faculty, staff, teachers, all of it. And if that's you today, and if you're comfortable, um, if you're going back to work with all these kids this week, will you stand up so we can pray for you? Is that, if any of our teachers, yeah, please stand. Yeah, let's give them a hand for sure. And that's in any capacity that you're going to be, so you, no, stay standing because this, this, this is going to take a while. No, it won't take a while. <laughs> no, but, but keep standing because you guys look around. And what I want, I want to pray for you. And I want as a church family to pray for those. So you guys look around and you see, because I want you to remember their faces. So I want you to continue to pray for them. And if you would, if you're close enough and you feel comfortable enough, put your hand on their shoulder or something. And if you're not, reach out, just kind of point towards somebody. Let's look around and, and let's just pray for them. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I just pray for all of those who are standing here today, who you have put in a position of influence in some form or capacity with our students. Lord, we know that the enemy wants our kids, and we're not going to let them have them. Lord, I thank you for all of those who are here today, Lord, who have given of themselves to serve in our school system in some capacity. Lord, I pray that uh, when they need the right words, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will put it in their mouths. Lord, I pray that when that when uh, they find themselves in challenging situations, that you'll help them navigate that as Christians. Lord, I, I just pray that in any, any room that they're in, any vehicle they're in, any, any line that they're in, Lord, that they will always be examples of what a Christ follower is like. And that everyone around them will see the difference in their lives. Lord, we just pray uh, over our kids going back to school. We pray, Lord, that this would be a great season of influence where you will get a hold of their hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's keep praying for our, for our folks that work in the school systems and the great positions that God has put them in. Well, it is great to be back with you. My wife and I have been on a trip for the last two weeks celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. So thank you. Thank you. Believe me, it's all me. And so, anyway, no, I'm joking. She's, she's not in here, so she can't rebut that. But no, it's really all her. But hey, I appreciate Andrew Kirshner and Kent Williams preaching the last two weekends. Did you enjoy them? Um, awesome. Um, I, I've gotten a lot of feedback since I've returned home, and a lot of it's just been very positive. So I'm really glad that uh, you appreciate their sermons. But I appreciate all of you for allowing me to have that time off to celebrate that big milestone. Um, for those of you that might be interested, we went on a cruise up the East Coast up into Canada. And uh, we went to a lot of places that I'd never spent any time, but I, I've never really, if not, my life has just never taken me out East. And so we left out of Baltimore, and then we went up to Boston, and then into Portland, and then we went to Bahaba. I learned that's how they say it up there, Bahaba. 
And then um, we went to St. John, and then we went to Halifax. It was a wonderful trip. It was beautiful. Every day it seemed like we were looking at stuff that looked like this. I'm going to show you a couple pictures. Check that out. Our ship sailed right past that. I pulled out my iPhone and took a snapshot of it. Look at that lighthouse. They're all over the place. I'm, I think, I don't know about you, but I think it'd be fun to live in a lighthouse. Wouldn't that be fun? Until the first storm blew in, and I'm like, I'm out of here. You ships are on your own. I left the batteries on. Anyway, um, and then um, we, uh, we saw a lot of things that look like this next picture. Check that out. That's in Bar Harbor, and um, we were waiting on our table at our restaurant, and they had this outside waiting area. And honestly, I would have liked to have eaten my meal right there. I could have sat there. Those are my feet, by the way. And I wasn't going to get up to take the picture, so that my feet got in the picture. And what a beautiful, that was like all the time. Um, I underestimated just how much people love seafood out there. Um, I didn't grow, I didn't, I mean, seafood's not my thing. I, I like it, but I don't crave it. And so it seemed like everybody loved seafood. Everywhere we went, there were these fish markets everywhere where these fishermen were bringing in their catch and they were throwing them on ice. Like, I think that thing right there that still looks like it's breathing, or it, I think they caught that that morning. Oh, I mean, all over the place. I, we went to this one fish market that had like 15 bins of these clams, all different kinds of clams. I am not a clam guy. There is nothing in me that says, hey, honey, Let's go out and eat some clams tonight. It's, it's gross to me. I don't know who the first guy was that dug one of those up, popped it open, and goes, mmm, that looks good. I'm going to eat that. No, it's gross. But, yeah, you'd have to be really hungry. I just think I'd go see Jesus. I, um, no, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever been that hungry. But you're right, hungry enough. Um, but it was our anniversary, and I did tell my wife that I'm going to try some new things. And so I did try that at this one place. It was lobster, macaroni, and cheese. I didn't even know you could put lobster in macaroni and cheese. And I'm going to be honest with you. It was really good. And then the waitress brought the bill. I looked at my wife, and I'm looking at the bill, and I said, it is boxed mac and cheese from here on out, I can tell you that. <laughs> Woo! But we had a wonderful trip. It's great to be back with our church family. It really is to, to great to be back with you. I was telling some of the guys on staff that I don't really, when I haven't gone for a couple weeks, I don't really feel normal again until I've been with the church, and so I'll feel normal again here in a couple hours. And so, um, But, you know, I, these last few months, we've been pretty deep in the book of Acts. And as a preacher, when you study something so intently, it's, it's hard to just turn that off when you leave. And so when we were on this ship and we were going from port to port to port to port, um, I couldn't help but think about all the times that Paul, during his third missionary journey, spent time on a ship going from port to port to port to port. Now, I guarantee you, he wasn't on a beautiful cruise ship, and I highly doubt he had anything resembling lobster, macaroni, and cheese. But on his third missionary journey, especially towards the end of it, he spent a lot of time on a ship. And there's going to be plenty of times as we move forward in our study, you're going to read things like Paul was on a ship, he went to here. We're going to read about this incredible shipwreck here in a couple chapters. It's, it's really quite exciting, um, all the things that Paul does. But, but today we start looking at Paul's third missionary journey. Now, I, I want to remind you, Paul went on a total of three missionary journeys. The first one we read about in Acts chapter 13 through 14, and that details that first trip that he went on. 
And then when you get to Acts chapter 16, verse 1, and you read all the way to Acts chapter 18, verse 22, that chronicles and details all the things that happened during his second missionary journey. Andrew Kirshner and Kent Williams both preached sermons on text of things that took place during Paul's second missionary journey. And then when you come to Acts chapter 18, verse 23, and that's where we're going to start today, and you read all the way to Acts chapter 21, verse 16, that encompasses all the things that happened on his third and final missionary journey. Now, this is a good time, again, we've done this a couple other times, this is a great time to, again, look at a map. And I'll remind you, if you have a Bible that has maps in the back of it, you have a map that looks something similar to this, and it will probably say Paul's three missionary journeys. This map is just of his third missionary journey, and I want to point out to you, it's going to be a little hard for you to read, I understand, but up at the top where you see that red line where it begins, that begins in the city of Antioch. This was a very special place. This was Paul's home. This is, this is that place years earlier when the good news of Jesus began to spread and a lot of non-Jewish people started to accept Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. Barnabas, he went and found Paul and he says, you've got to come up here to Antioch with me because all of these non-Jewish people are following Christ. So Paul and Barnabas, they move there, and they establish the church. They spend years teaching, guiding, mentoring, coaching that church, establishing it, trying to reach that whole city for Jesus. They raise up leaders in that church. This is a very special place to Paul. And I want to remind you, it was in the city of Antioch that the word Christian was first thrown out there. Our name, our label of Christian comes from Antioch. And so from there, that's where he launched all of his missionary journeys up to that point, his first and his second one. So here we find ourselves at the end of Acts chapter 18. He just completed his second journey, and he's spending some time at home. And then after a while, he wants to leave again. He's ready to hit the road, and he wants to go see all the churches and all the people and the relationships that he has built over the years. Do you kind of get the impression that Paul is a little bit of a restless spirit? I mean, he's on the move constantly, and, and, and Paul, he, he's just driven. I think that's what it is. He's just driven to reach more and more people for Jesus. So he takes off, and if you look here on the map again, I'm having to put it back up there. We're going to start in Antioch, and if you follow that red line, he heads out west. He's already been out this direction before on his previous two trips, but he's going to visit and encourage all the churches along the way. And the Bible says that he went through the province of Galatia. That is that bluish-green part of the map where it says Galatia. The book of Galatians in the New Testament was a letter that Paul wrote specifically to all the churches in the province of Galatia. Then he continues traveling through Pergamum, which on this map is labeled Asia. That's that kind of reddish, pinkish color there. And you, can't pro you probably can't see it on this map, but there are a number of cities where churches are located at. I'm going to read these cities off to you, and I want you to see if any of these cities rings a bell in your own spiritual walk, and your own understanding of the Bible. In that area, we read churches that are located in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Any of those names jog a memory of something? These right here in that red area are, are in very close proximity to each other. Those are the seven churches of the book of Revelation. If you read the first couple chapters of Revelation, the Lord 
issues uh, some instruction to these seven churches. Five of them, the Lord rebukes. Two of them, he has nothing but praise for. It's these seven churches right up in here that Paul planted. And one of the strongest rebukes from God um, came to the church at Laodicea. And even if you're not familiar with the Bible, what the Lord says to them is probably familiar to you, even if you didn't realize it. Do you remember what he said? God said to the church at Laodicea, he said, I know your deeds, and if you know it, say it with me, that you are neither cold nor hot. He said, I wish you were one or the other, the Lord said. So because you are lukewarm, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. That is an incredibly strong rebuke at the end of the Bible. That's these churches right here, the seven churches of Revelation. And Paul is going through there, trying to strengthen them. This is where we get this idea, like, I don't want to be a lukewarm Christian. That idea comes from the church, Laodicea. Now, Paul will eventually make his way all the way to Ephesus, which you follow that line, that red line. It's almost to the water there. It is to the water. And Paul will spend three years in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus will become a special place to Paul as well. Probably not as special as Antioch, his home church, but he will grow to love the people in Ephesus. Like I said, he'll spend the next three years there. Four of the New Testament books of the Bible were written to Christians in Ephesus. You have the book of Ephesians that Paul would later write to the church in that community. First and second Timothy was written to Timothy, who was the leader of the church in Ephesus. And in the very beginning of the book of Revelation, it's one of the churches that God spoke and, and, and had a word for, right? At the beginning of, 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 of uh, Revelation. Now, I want you to turn your attention to chapter 19, verse 11. That's where we're going to start today. And so Paul is in Ephesus. He is off on his third missionary journey. He's been at it for a while, and this is what happens. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Now, can I just press pause for a second and ask, I think, a logical question? What is an extraordinary miracle? Because when I think about miracles... Aren't they all pretty extraordinary? I mean, just so far in the book of Acts, what have we seen? We've seen the apostles and others speaking in other tongues, languages they didn't know. That's pretty extraordinary. We've seen people who were sick get healed. We've seen people who've been lame from birth stand up and walk. And how many prison breaks have we seen? Doors that were locked open, angels leading people out, chains falling off wrists and ankles. Those are all pretty extraordinary. Now, I don't want to read more into the text than what's there. But it seems like in Acts chapter 19, verse 11, something a little bit more extraordinary than those things is happening. So, so what is it? Well, they tell us a little bit. If you keep reading, it says this. Extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even, now catch this, you may have never read this before. Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left him. Nod your head if you're like, that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, even handkerchiefs. So like Paul would wipe his head and they would take that. So I'm selling this after church. <laughs> any, any, there's also some, oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to chase that trail. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 
I'm thinking about the next chapter in Acts chapter 20. We're not going to be there today. But after Paul leaves Ephesus after three years, he travels um, to a place called Troas. He's only there for a short amount of time. And since his time is short, he is teaching the church. And he preaches and preaches and preaches well into the night. This goes on for hours. And I know sometimes it feels like that here. But Paul is doing it. He goes on for hours. And there's this guy sitting in the windowsill. He's three stories up in the air. And he falls asleep on Paul. How do you fall asleep on the Apostle Paul? This man falls out the window and he dies. And it says in Acts chapter 20, verse 10, that Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him, and he said, don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Paul raised this man back to life. I would say that's pretty extraordinary. They went back upstairs and, and the Bible says that Paul continued to teach and he taught the people till morning. He preached all night. And I guarantee you, no one else fell asleep during that sermon. And this guy that fell out the window, I can guarantee you, he never fell asleep in church ever again. The guy's name is Eutychus. What a name, Eutychus. And the old joke, I'm sure you've heard it, is like, well, Eutychus too if you fell out of a three-story window, you know. <laughs> that can't be a new joke. Is that a new joke? You're welcome. Yeah, my, my job here is done. All right. Really, I thought that had just been around forever. Okay. Back, back in Ephesus, though, Paul's ministry is there. So he comes into town, and I'm summarizing large pieces of Acts chapter 19 for you, but he comes into town, and he does what has been his normal custom everywhere he goes. He starts his ministry in the synagogues. He goes to the house of worship that is known. It's a Jewish synagogue, and he begins to teach there. And the Bible tells us that Paul argued boldly and persuasively about the kingdom of God. That's in Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And he was able to do this for three whole months, which is remarkable, because I can't think of any other times where um, Jewish leaders gave him three months in their house of worship to talk about Jesus. But eventually that ran its course, and they're like, you got to get out of here. And so the Bible tells that Paul moved his conversations to what was called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. We don't know a whole lot about that. We just know that he had daily discussions there with anyone who would listen of him talking about the good news of Jesus, and he did that for two whole years every day in this lecture hall. And it says, the Bible tells us, the word of God spread, and that this whole area, the whole region, had heard about the good news of Jesus. So in other words, he was very effective, he was very persuasive, and the word of this spread all over the place. And then, during that same time, during this two years, Paul is doing things that we don't know about. We're going to just say extraordinary. We, we can assume Paul drove out demons, healed people, all of these things. There were these men. They're called the seven sons of Sceva. And there was a Jewish priest as well. They're not Christians, but they also wanted to do the things that they saw Paul doing. Now, we don't know what their motivation was. Did they really want to help people like Paul was helping people? Did they just want the praises of men? I, I don't know. But they got it in their mind, and, and there is, there's historical evidence of some of this just in Jewish culture as well, of driving out demons and things like that. But they decided that they were going to drive out demons like they had seen Paul do. And as you read Acts chapter 19, we read that these eight guys, they come across a man who was demon-possessed. Now, how did they know he was demon-possessed? I don't know. 
but they knew, and he was. And they said to this man who had this demon, they said to him, in the name of Jesus Christ, which is interesting because they don't follow Christ, but they said, in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who Paul talks about, and that's an interesting detail, you know, they're, they're like, hey, you know, the one, this Jesus guy that Paul is talking about, we command you in Jesus' name, the one that Paul talks about, to come out. I don't know what they were expecting. What happens next is, I think, where they get the ideas for all these scary movies. Because this demon actually responds. And this demon says to them, I know Jesus. I, I don't, that's my best demon voice at 1046 in the morning. <laughs> I know Jesus, and I've heard about Paul, but I don't know you. In other words, there was no intimidation, there was no fear of this demon towards, there was no Holy Spirit involved. And sometimes, you know, you'd like to be a little fly on the wall in Scripture and actually see what happened next. All we get is this. The demon pounced on these eight guys and he gave them the royal beatdown of their lives. And it says the result of that is they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's quite a beatdown. Now, there was an incredible demonic presence in Ephesus, and we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. But something like that happening, word spreads quickly. And if you look at verse 17, real quick, chapter 19, verse 17, it says, when this became known, in other words, this demon beating up these eight guys, when that became known... To the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, I would think so, seized with fear, but guess what else happened? The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. What an incredible reaction to an MMA fight, okay? The name of Jesus was held in high honor. Now, we don't, we're not going to get into much of this today. But how many of you, by the nodding of your heads, know that there is a spiritual war being waged all around us that we cannot see? Do you know that? The Bible talks all about it. It's in Ephesus. I want to connect a dot for you. It is in the city of Ephesus where this demonic beatdown took place that Paul would later write to the Christians there in the book of Ephesians, and he would tell them to put on the full armor of God. It's, it's Ephesus. It's the Christians there. That's where Paul feels motivated. They put on the full armor of God. And here's why. Paul said, so that, here's why you need armor. So that you can, what? Stand against, some translations say, stand your ground against the devil's schemes. Then Paul would go on to say to that church, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, that point is very key in understanding who our real enemy is. Our struggle is not flesh and blood. Our struggle is not with each other. But it's with something else. It's with 
the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what Paul wrote to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus. Why was he so concerned about the Christians there putting on the full armor of God? It's because Ephesus was a demonic stronghold. And we see that when we look at what Ephesus was all about. I can guarantee you that Satan and his demons had been in the city of Ephesus a lot longer than Paul was. A lot longer than the church. They had a stronghold there. Let me tell you a little bit about the biblical city, or the ancient city of Ephesus. There was about 300,000 people that lived there the day that Paul walked in through the city gate. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. So you know that big pinkish area on the map? Ephesus was the capital city of that, that area. And Ephesus was a very wealthy community. They were wealthy because they were right there by the water and they had massive trade operations going all around the known world. And there were people that would travel all over the known world to Ephesus for one reason. They wanted to get their eyes to see what was one of the seven wonders of the world. Do you know what it was? It was the Temple of Artemis, also known as the Temple of Diana. I'm going to show you a picture. This is an artist's rendition of this temple. Now, when you think about when this was built, this is pre-Paul, so this is a long, long time ago. This temple to, um, dedicated to the false god Diana, uh, it's, or Artemis, it's the same person, um, it was 250 feet by four, excuse me, 450 feet by 225 feet. So this little box here, this first box, that's on scale of what a football field is today. So this thing is big. There were 127 columns that went around the outside. Each of them were 60 feet tall. This is an amazing structure. That's why it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And people would travel all over just to look at this monstrous structure that was dedicated to this goddess uh, Diana. Now, they said that, you know, that, that this building, this temple, housed Diana's sacred image that uh, all throughout history you can read about it, but they believe her image fell from heaven, and whatever that fell that contained her image is housed in this temple. And in fact, we're not going to read this part today, but later on in the latter part of chapter 19, there is even a reference in Scripture of the belief that her image was contained inside the, the, the temple and that that image fell from heaven. Um, a lot of historians believe that it was probably a meteorite that fell and they took it as a god and they put it in this building. We don't know. It's all lost in antiquity. But Diana was the fertility god. And to worship Diana, you would have to express that worship through cultic prostitution. Now you think there's 300,000 people in this community. Many of them worship the fertility god Diana. And in order to express their worship, they don't go to church. They go to the temple. And there are hundreds and hundreds of, of priestesses that were there to service this way of worship through this prostitution. Friends, I'm telling you, this was a demonic stronghold of the enemy. This is the community that Paul is trying to start a church in. And so, yes, he says, Christians there, you got to put on the full armor of God because Satan has his grip on this place. Evidenced by this demonic beatdown 
of these guys who were trying to invoke the name of Jesus. Demonic stronghold. And this temple to Diana, it's just the tip of the iceberg in Ephesus. And Paul wanted the Christians there to be wise. And I wonder, is it any different for us in America today? Because I think in many ways, America is becoming a stronghold of the enemy. This demon that beat up these eight guys in Ephesus, his goal was to squash the name of Jesus. Every demon's goal is to squash the name of Jesus, to thwart the plans of Christians. But what's interesting is you read on that what the demon was trying to do actually backfired on him because what he did that day only magnified the name of Jesus. Because what happened right after this beatdown? It says the word of God spread rapidly. And what else happened? The name of Jesus was held in high honor after that. The result of this beating was that Jesus' name became great. And, and there's something we read in Scripture about the name of Jesus being held up high in Ephesus while Paul was there. And that leads to life change. And I'm wondering, is the church today here in America, and I've talked pretty openly with you about this, have we lost this high view of Jesus? The way we talk about Jesus today and the way we use, you know, words so flippantly to describe him, I'm wondering if we are in danger of losing our high view of Jesus. I'm a firm believer that when we hold the name of Jesus high, that's what produces life change in people. You know, we can go about beating people over the head with Bibles and yelling things, turn and burn and picketing and all those things. But none of those things are really going to produce the kind of life change that Jesus will when they come under conviction that Jesus is to be honored. You see, there's something happening in Ephesus where they're like, Jesus needs to be honored and we're going to hold him up high. And what that produces is this incredible change in behavior in the people. You know, as I travel around the country, and I, I do pay attention, more than you know, about what's happening in our denominations and in our churches in America, it concerns me that I think, in many ways, American churches are replacing their high view of Jesus with a high view of acceptance. They're replacing their high view of Jesus with a high view of needing praise. They're replacing their high view of Jesus with this high understanding desire to be comfortable and not rock the boat. And I think what's happening in many churches in many places is that we have fallen out of love with Jesus and we have fallen in love with the very things that Jesus hates, which is sin. And it's being expressed in our churches in many ways. And that's another sermon. But back when Paul was there in Ephesus... And this demon beating took place. The name of Jesus was proclaimed boldly. The name of Jesus was held in high honor, and it produced a lot of life change. Look at verse 18. Here's what happened as a result of all of that. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls and together together and burn them publicly do, do you did you not don't let that go past you too quick these people are confessing they've been involved in witchcraft and sorcery and demonic things and I, I, 
the devil had a stronghold there. And they bring all these scrolls and witchcraft tools and, and, and they, they throw them in this huge bonfire. They burn them up. And it says this next, when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That doesn't mean a thing to us. Let me help you understand what that's worth. A drachma was a little silver coin that you would receive when you did a full day's labor. So a drachma was considered a full day's wage. So all of these things that got burned that day or were related to sorcery and witchcraft, they valued 50,000 drachmas. So 50,000 days of working. Now you can figure up in your mind what you make per hour, per day, and then whatever that number is, times it by 50,000. That's what got burned. Friends, that is life change. That's a change of behavior that is the result of a change of heart. And when your heart is open to Jesus and you place your faith in him, that's when you'll see your behavior change. The Lord Jesus being in a high honor. I, I remember when I was a student at Ozark Christian College, we did this every fall. It's not uncommon. A lot of college campuses do something very similar. We had a big bonfire. Anybody ever have a big bonfire at college? This is something, this was like an organized activity, and it was at right at the beginning of the school year, and we would do worship, and hundreds of students would come to this, and we would have professors. They would come, and they would teach, and, 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 and we would study together. It was, it was a great evening. And I'll never forget this one bonfire. It was right at the beginning of the school year. We were worshiping around this fire, and, and one of our professors was teaching, and, and he says this. He says, some of you students have brought to school with you things that are going to make it very hard for you to fulfill what God wants you to do here. Some of you have brought things with you that is going to get in the way of what God's trying to do in your life. It's going to take the name of Jesus out of its high place and it's going to confuse it with something else. And he challenged all of us. He says, some of you brought this stuff and I'm going to give you the opportunity right now. Go back to your dorm rooms, bring it here to this fire and let's burn it. And so we're all sitting around like, oh, this just got real. I was here for marshmallows and kumbaya, but this is, and to look at pretty girls. And so this is, uh, yeah, I had Bible college too, you know. One by one, students started to leave. And after a while, many of them came back. And they were holding things. And after a while, I mean, and, and you've got to catch the environment. There's a big bonfire. We're all singing praises to Jesus and Somebody throws a CD into the fire. Kids, a CD is a little compact disc <laughs> that, that's about that big. And, and old fogies like me, we used to put that in what was called a CD player. And we had to go to the store to buy these. And um, anyway, so some of the kids were throwing in their CDs. Music that was just absolutely ungodly. And no, this is going to be a problem for me. This might surprise you, but... There were some magazines that got thrown in the fire that day. Yeah, at Bible college, some magazines. Other things got thrown in the fire, personal things. I thought, no, this is, this is in the way of my worship of God. I'll never forget one student. He was a brand new student at our school, and he had a bag of drugs. Not, not, not prescription drugs, drug drugs. And he threw that in the fire. And one of our Bible college professors, he saw that. He goes, stop! Did you guys see what just happened? 
This man right here is going to need about 20 brothers around him right now. And he's going to need you to stay with him all the time because what he did is huge. And we're going to come around him. He's given it up. And I, I, I'll never forget, like 20 guys from school came around this guy and embraced him. It's probably something he's never experienced in his whole life. Friend, I'm just saying, when we put Jesus in the right spot, and we hold him in high honor, and we keep him there, that's what produces the life change in our lives. Nothing else is Jesus. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. There is no better result for a church. There's no greater reward for any community of Christ followers than to help somebody experience life change. And that's what the church's message is all about, life change. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 just simply says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Some translations say he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. That is the foundational truth of being a follower of Christ, is that the old you can be burned away and the new you, filled with the Holy Spirit, can thrive in Jesus' name. That's the great thing about being a follower of Jesus. And it does not matter what you've been involved with. God doesn't care about where you've been. He cares about what? Where you are going. There's a reason why in 2016 we changed the name of our church to New Life Christian Church. It reflects what we're all about. Well, the church is about the business of life change through Jesus. And if the church is not about that, then dare I say, it's not about anything. And if the church isn't equipped to help somebody experience this life change, then the church doesn't understand its reason for being. Well, there's lots more. I'll let you read the rest of the chapter on your own. It gets better, I promise. The really sad part about Ephesus is that they're riding this high when Paul was there. But by the time you get to the book of Revelation, the Lord has a strong rebuke for the Christians living in Ephesus. Do you know what the Lord says to them in Revelation? He says, you've done some good things, but I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Sadly, the Christians in Ephesus removed Jesus out of his high honor position and they replaced it with something else. They fell away. And the Lord says to the church, go back to what you used to be like. Repent and go back. See, I believe New Life Christian Church has a different story than the church in Ephesus. I believe and I desire and I hope you do too that we are going to put Jesus in a high place and we're going to keep him in a high place and when the Lord returns, he's going to say, New Life family, well done, my good and faithful servants. That's the kind of church we're going to be. This is the kind of church that's going to change our community. This is the kind of church that we keep Jesus lifted high. This is the kind of faith that we're going to have that's going to have rippling effects for generations. This, I believe is the kind of church God wants us to be. We will be a church that has a high view of Jesus, and we're going to let the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. Let me pray for you. Dear gracious God, I just thank you for what you're doing in your word here and what we are learning from it. And I, my prayer, Lord, is just that, that we will be 
a church that continually and constantly keeps you in the right place, which is in a very high view, which is one of worship and praise and glory and honor, and that, Lord, we draw our strength from you and everything comes from you. And, Lord, the million details that come after that, we're going to trust your Holy Spirit's guidance in. Lord, my prayer for us is that you'll protect us from the schemes of the enemy. That, Lord, we as a church family will put on the full armor of God. And that, Lord, we will instinctively know that our battle is not with any individuals in this room. But it's with the enemy that wants to squash the name of Jesus. Lord, your word says that when we come near to you, you come near to us. And your word also says that the devil has to flee from us in the name of Jesus. So, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus, the devil to leave. He has no influence on our congregation. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we pray that the enemy and his demons and whatever influence he wants in this place and in our families, in our lives, he has no influence. We don't allow him to have any influence. So, Lord, we pray that you will squash the devil before us. That when demons attack, you will thwart their efforts. And that, Lord, we will plow forward, keeping you at the forefront of our vision, keeping you in high honor, keeping our worship and praise and devotion completely on you. And the devil cannot have any part of it. And Lord, I pray as we try to reach more and more people for the good news, with the good news of Jesus in our community, Lord, would you go before us and prepare hearts and minds to be open to what you are doing. Lord, the devil wants a stronghold in Bella Vista. He wants a stronghold in our church family. And we rebuke that in the name of Jesus Christ. He can't have it. And we thank you, Lord, for your authority, your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.